I mean, do the math. The economic opportunity here in terms of being able to both provide the labor that people want and being able to profit from it by developing a technology like this is just it's an opportunity unlike any that I think has ever existed. It's way bigger than the steam engine, for example. The global conversation about robots and the workforce has shifted substantially in recent years, from concern about robots taking jobs to questions about how quickly they can fill gaps in the labor market. One of the ventures at the forefront of this issue is Sanctuary AI. It's a Vancouver, BC-based company that has raised more than 100 million Canadian dollars to pursue its vision for labor as a service. Sanctuary makes a five-foot, seven-inch general-purpose humanoid robot called Phoenix. It's powered by an advanced AI system called Carbon. Welcome to GeekWire. I'm Todd Bishop, and our guest this week is Jordy Rose, Sanctuary AI's co-founder and CEO. Jordy, it's great to see you. Glad to be here. I'd like to talk about the larger picture of artificial intelligence, cognitive systems, and robotics with you. For people who have not heard of Sanctuary AI, what do you do? And what are your aspirations for this company? The company is mission-driven, and the mission is to be the first to build human-like intelligence in general-purpose robots. A general-purpose robot is a machine designed to be able to do work of the sort you'd expect a person to do. And a human-like intelligence is a software control system that runs in that robot that would allow you to interact with the robot the same way you would interact with a person at work speaking to them, asking them to do things, and expecting them to be able to complete what you've asked them to do the same way you would a person. And this has manifested itself to this point in a robot called Phoenix that's powered by an advanced AI software system called Carbon. Phoenix is about five feet, seven inches. If I were standing in front of Phoenix right now, what would I see and what could Phoenix do? We tried to make the robot look endearing and competent. It's roughly humanoid in shape. It's got two hands and two arms uh, attached to a body with a head, moves around a little bit like a person, but all of that kind of is, is a veneer on top of, you know, the real design objective, which was to create a machine that could do work, not just some kinds of work, but in the limit. Uh, most of the sorts of things that we do when we work. So the primary difficult part of that, which is a problem that's beginning to be addressed in the AI and robotics community, but only the beginnings of it, is uh, building building hands. So our hands are remarkable in many ways. The opposable thumb part was the beginnings of our tool use, and the, and tool use was the beginnings of technology, which has led us everywhere from the the plains of Africa to proliferation of science and technology we've got now. And uh, also, quite remarkably, there's a lot of evidence that our hands were actually important in the development of language. So our first proto-languages uh, were probably uh, sounds that were descriptive of what we did with our hands, you know, pointing, touching, uh, that kind of stuff. And so when we were building this particular robot, unlike many of the other folks who build robots, we spent an awful lot of time trying to get the hands right. So looks a little bit like a person. The hands are very human-like, uh, and it's designed to be able to do all sorts of different things. 
And as you said, it is a humanoid robot. When we've talked in the past, you've mentioned that one of the reasons that it's important to design a robot for a digital brain is that so much of the learning and the cognition that humans have is derived from their interactions with the real world. You've also mentioned that societal acceptance is important. People, if a robot is going to be in their midst, it seems might be more comfortable with something that somewhat roughly resembles their own form. What was the reason that Phoenix ended up being a humanoid robot? Well, it was almost entirely the the use side. If you try to figure out what we do when we work, which has been done, economists study this sort of thing, nearly all of what we do in when we work is delivered through our hands in a very particular way. So when we design workflows for jobs, it doesn't really matter what the job is. Obviously, we design them for people uh, because historically, up to relatively recently, all work was, was with the exception of things that animals did, like in the old days, like till fields and things like that. But nearly all of the value that, you know, the things that we needed to get done, people would do them. So in the relatively modern era, we started designing machines to do some of the things that people do. Uh, you know, the industrial revolution kicked off an important part of that with steam engines and being able to do physical work uh, with machines. But now we're in a, a stage of technology development where it's possible to build machines that think. And when you can build a machine that thinks, I should be careful about that. We can't quite do that yet, but we're getting close. When we can develop machines that think, question becomes what couldn't they do? So if you have a machine that thinks and it's, it's got the same physical capabilities as a person and presumably it could do all work, so the reason why the systems we build are humanoid is that the, the mission of this organization is to try to build the, the workforce of the future, the machines that will be doing the majority of things that need getting done. And you can't do that unless you have a humanoid form factor because the world is built for people. So what can Phoenix do? It's got an unclear boundary of capability, <laughs> by which I mean we can't enumerate all of the things that it can do. Because, you know, there's how many things are there? You know, there's an infinite number of things you can try to do. But um, it can do pretty much anything you'd expect a, a person to be able to do when it's under teleoperation control. So that is a mode of operation where there's a person in a VR suit who is uh, controlling the robot. So when you're in that mode, the robot's physically capable of doing a fairly significant cut of what you'd expect a person to do. And just to give some examples, I know you have a facility inside your headquarters called Ground Truth, where, for example, a Phoenix robot might come along and wipe off the table when people are sitting there. When Phoenix is doing something like that, is it operating in remote mode or is it autonomously? Mostly always when you see these robots uh, demonstrating tasks, it's under teleoperation control. And I just I want to kind of uh, dig down on this a little bit about why. So the way that the autonomy program works here, the way that we're trying to build an artificial general intelligence in the embodied sense, that is you know, an AI that actually controls a machine, is we show it examples of what we want it to be able to do. And those examples need to be good. And these uh, getting good examples from a very high dimensional machine in an uncontrolled environment is beyond the scope of modern uh, AI or control architectures, by which I mean you can't actually do 
wash the table and, you know, make a coffee and clean the bathroom and all of these different kinds of things. The burden of building like fully autonomous systems for them one by one is, is, is too high. So instead what we do is we pilot the robots using people that give these exemplars. You can think of them as episodes of good behavior. And then we collect those episodes and then we use it to train uh, what you can think of as foundation models of behavior, which are uh, largely data-driven models that are somewhat analogous to the way that things like GPT and other large language models work and that they're essentially prediction machines. Except what they're predicting is not sort of the next word in a, in a sentence. What they're predicting is the next action that the robot should take given the context that it's in and all of that instead of being trained, say, on the internet's text corpus, like GPT would be, they're trained on these behavioral episodes that our pilots provide when they perform the tasks in the real world through the robot. When a Phoenix robot goes out to a customer, like, for example, I know one of your customers is Canadian Tire Corporation there in Canada. Is that ultimately being operated autonomously after that initial training period? Ultimately, but that's a process. Automating systems in this way is a, is a novel, pushing the boundaries kind of thing. No one's built an AI system for a robot that's, um, that's like this before. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's been preliminary work in trying to do it in limited circumstances, but nobody's really attacked the problem with the gusto that we are, let's say. So when, when these robots are first deployed, and the way that we engage with customers is we have a multi-year program that we embark on with them which starts by fully documenting the use cases that they are interested in automating in the sense of documenting what people do when they do those things, like being very meticulous about how people do a particular thing. That's the beginning. And then the end is a fully autonomously performed task using our technology. But in the intervening time, which can be years, there's a process whereby we first do all of this using piloted robots, people driving the robots essentially, to collect, you can think of as driving miles. So an analogy would be a car with a person driving it can produce expert driving information about how a person would drive a car given a circumstance. And as you collect that, the cars are still driving, they're generating value, they're doing the thing that they're designed to do. There's a person in the car at the end of the day, the person can maybe be taken out of the car and the system can be automated and you get you know, full self-driving. So in our machine, which is similar to a car in some ways, you have a machine that's being driven by a person initially to collect data. And then presumably, once you get enough data of a certain kind, certain kinds of tasks uh, can become automated. And part of the premise of what we're doing is a bet that if you have enough coverage, that is, there's enough tasks being demonstrated, then these models will become able to generalize from what they've seen into other domains. So it's a model like GPT, the OpenAI large language models, was trained on such a large corpus of data without a specific objective in mind. It wasn't designed to be, you know, write my French poetry homework but it can do that. It wasn't designed to write code, but it can do that. It wasn't designed, et cetera, et cetera. So the reason why it, it, it has this flavor of generality is that it's seen so many things that it can kind of paint outside of the lines a little bit. So with a machine like what we're trying to do, there's an analogous situation where if you show it enough work data, the hope is that when you show it a new thing, like for example, I asked the robot, 
uh, I want you to assemble this carburetor on this automotive manufacturing floor and you show it how to do it, you know, just show it once, then it will be able to do it even though it's never seen that task before. So that would be the analogy of asking, say, chat GPT or one of these derivatives to write a story about, you know, seven elves in a magical kingdom. I mean, maybe it's never done that before, but it can kind of, you know, ad lib and and make it look good. So in our case, the hope is that work tasks can be done in the same way. Up next, the long-term population trends that promise to drive demand for robots over the next century. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. We're back with Jordy Rose, co-founder and CEO of Sanctuary AI. How did you get down this path yourself? Why is this an important mission to you personally? Well, for the first half of my career, I built computers. Um, I was involved in, I was the CTO of an effort to build an entire compute stack from the ground up. It was the world's first quantum computer. During that journey, I had convinced myself that building fast computers was the most impactful thing that I could work on. But during the end of my tenure in that first half of my career, I had the good fortune to be exposed to a bunch of folks in the artificial intelligence community who convinced me that the most important thing was not to build a tool that does what you ask it to do, but to build a thing capable of knowing what to ask the tool to do, which is the human mind. I ganged up with a bunch of very smart people who believed that they had a way to try to build a general intelligence, the original goal of the AI community. And uh, I've been working on that ever since. So the second half of my career has been dedicated to what you could call embodied AI or embodied cognition, the idea of building software control systems for robots that are designed to mimic the way that biological brains work. You're doing something that you call labor as a service. How does that work? Well, it's very similar to the way that, that the current economy works. Instead of paying a person, you're paying a machine. When we have a, a person who has, who's doing work, the fundamental contract is that the employer wants something done and uh, they're willing to trade money for having that thing done. And when you ask, like, how am I going to get this thing done for nearly every job that exists today, the answer is a person. So we all have, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to be employed, we have jobs where we are doing things that people are asking us to do in exchange for money. There's no reason why you couldn't do that with a machine in principle. So the, um, the business model is set up to be the same because most, most folks who are interested in having things done that are usually paying people to do it, there's a natural way to pay a machine to do the same task. Does it work on an hourly basis or does it work based on tasks completed? How do you envision that happening? The simplest way to do it is task completed because then everybody knows what they're getting. So if the customer has once some particular thing done and uh, they know the economics of that particular thing in terms of how much they can spend on it, how much revenue they generate from it, then putting a technology like this in that 
role, it's there's a very clear financial relationship between doing it and getting paid. So the cleanest way is is task completion. And you know, the last company that I ran, uh, Kindred, ran that business model very effectively, and it was it was extremely successful. I think that when you start automating things, when the machines are intelligent, the business model is going to tend towards this type of approach where the systems you, you basically the, the you get paid per accomplished task instead of per hour or or a different kinds of models. And you certainly won't be buying hardware. You know, like in the old days, people bought robots, and that's not going to be the way it works because nearly nobody wants to own a robot. There are exceptions, but most people don't want to own the robot. What they want is what the robot does. That's what they want. So our model, largely, although there are some exceptions, is to own all of the the system, you know, the hardware and the software and all that. And people pay for the accomplishment of tasks using the systems that we built. What have we seen over the past few years in terms of the changes in the perceptions of automation as the labor market has changed or as underlying trends and birth rates have been exposed? Tell me where you're headed with this in terms of the potential impact and filling a gap in the labor market. The kind of like the zeitgeist around automation has done a has, has, has changed dramatically over the last five years. When we were starting on this journey of of trying to build, you know, increasingly sophisticated machines for doing work, the dominant narrative was automation takes jobs. And somewhere along the way that flipped to we need automation because if we don't have it, we won't have anybody doing any of the things that we need done. And the thing that really, I think, drove this home was two things. One is there was a realization of what was happening with birth rates. So demographic change is something that historically, like a very small group of people thought about demographers. Because I think the reason was we got into this way of thinking that there was just a way that people were and there was always more people than, you know, the, every generation there would be more people. But then what started happening is first in countries like, like Japan, but then in the United States and Canada and other places, the birth rate dropped very low replacement. And this happened a long time ago, like in the 60s. And it never has come back and it keeps going down. And in some places like in China and in and, and South Korea, the birth rate has gone so low that the projections are now that the population of those places will have within a generation. So imagine China with half the number of people in one generation. That's what we're looking at. So it went from being this weird thing that only some people thought about to the thing that is on the ledger at board meetings in every company in the world. The, this is an alarming fact that we still haven't gotten our heads around. Personally, I think this is a much bigger deal than global warming. Because if, if, you know, populations are exponential, they either exponentially go up or they exponentially go down. It's very hard for them to be, you know, robustly solid at a number. So I think what we're looking at is a future with exponentially decreasing populations. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but one of the impacts that it has is that you can't find a doctor ever. You won't have a family doctor because there aren't any. When you need the uh, you need an electrician, there won't be any. When you need a plumber, there won't be any. When you need your road fixed, there won't be anybody to do that. When you need a building built, there won't be any construction workers. 
this future where there just aren't anybody to do anything is what we're staring at. And so that was one thing. But the other thing was this uh, more tactical problem that a lot of the world's big companies that hire a lot of people have increasingly been unable to do so. So, uh, and not just companies, militaries. So there is this dramatic, alarming shortage of people to do the things that are necessary to keep our economy going. So the, these big companies were like, what are we going to do? And not just companies, but also countries. So Canada runs on immigration because we don't have a birth rate internal to support our country. If we didn't do immigration, Canada would be in huge trouble. Even with immigration, we're in huge trouble, I think, in some ways of measuring it. So um, the, these big companies were like, where are we going to find all the people to do all this work? Right now, there's more than 10 million unfilled jobs in the United States. So the, um, uh, the answer has to be technology, because in the limit, in the future, all work will be done by machines. I mean, it's just a matter of when, not if. I mean, this is clear, because robots get cheaper and better, AI gets better. At some point, there's going to be an easy calculus. If I want something built or something done, why would I have a person do it? Because the machines are going to be so much better at it. And by the way, these two things work beautifully together because as the population goes down, as it naturally will in the future, there's going to be more and more things we're going to want done. Like things are not going to go away that we want done. And there's going to be this increasing workforce from the machine side that will be able to do those things for us. When you look at the curve of the birth rate going down and the robots rising, as it were, where do we stand and where are things headed? And are the robots going to be here fast enough? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the so let, let me give me a specific example from my own experience. So I live in British Columbia in Canada, and uh, I've been here since 1995, give or take. In all of the years between 1995 and last year, I've tried to find a family doctor and been unable. So, you know, I'm, I've got means. I'm not stupid. I, I know how to read a website. And there's aren't any. So the question about like, where are the doctors is not just, a, is, you know, it's a complicated thing, right? It's not just about, you know, declining birth rates and big macro trends, but we already see it. Another example here is the, there's nobody to do stuff when you need like construction done. So we moved into a new office here and it was a nightmare finding people to actually do the work. So this declining birth rates thing, I think, plays itself out over a long period of time, which is one of the reasons why it's so dangerous, is that people aren't used to thinking about things that take 100 years to kind of roll out. And generational things are really hard for us to think about. So that's going to happen over a period of a long time. And, you know, maybe things will turn around. People will have start having more kids, but I kind of doubt it. On the robot side, it's also very, it's very difficult to predict because technology kind of advances in leaps and bounds. It doesn't advance kind of predictably always. I think something like uh, the recent developments in AI are an example of a, a thing that nobody really expected those things to perform so well. The, I mean, large language models. So, you know, something like what we're doing could just work out of the box. You know, you get enough data and all of a sudden you got a full AGI. You got a machine that is just like a person, thinks like a person, talks like a person, acts like a person. That could happen. 
On the other hand, it could be a problem that's so hard that, you know, in a hundred years, we'll be looking back and saying, oh, those guys thought that they were right around the corner for understanding all this stuff. Well, man, were they wrong? Um, and it's hard to know, you know, when you're, when you're building advanced, really advanced technology on the state of the art, you got to kind of come to terms with the fact that timing is everything, but it's almost impossible to know for sure. You know, you have to make bets. So my bet is that we're far enough along on the demographic crash to have enough customers to never run out of that is, you know, open, open jobs that we can't find people to fill. Um, and the technology is far enough along to be able to build economically viable solutions for those jobs. The 10 million open roles that I just referred to, assuming they're, say, to like $50,000 per year, fully burdened, which is about right. I mean, do the math. The economic opportunity here in terms of being able to both provide the labor that people want and being able to profit from it by developing a technology like this is just, it's an opportunity unlike any that I think has ever existed. It's way bigger than the steam engine, for example. After the break, banana peels and robot brains. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. We're back with Jordy Rose, co-founder and CEO of Sanctuary AI. I thought of you recently on a trip to Austin. <laughs> I went to an Amazon 11th generation fulfillment center where they had a variety of robots, including one called Robin that is able to sort packages onto mobile drive units and a newer one called Sparrow that is the first to actually pick up individual objects of different types, products, not just packages. And we had talked in the past about Phoenix's hands and the fact that these hands are able to grasp a, a variety of objects. And I was sitting there wondering as I was looking at these Amazon robotic arms with different pistons and suction cups, why they weren't following more of a human hand model. What are your observations about the way that a lot of these warehouse robots work and is the emulation of the human hand a potential solution for for folks like this there's room there's th both approaches make a lot of sense but they solve different problems when you can like really carefully define a really important problem to solve that's really valuable building a special purpose tool that does that thing you know and only that thing makes a lot of sense. This is what's driven the robotics industry since it got started, solving very specific problems with very particular approaches that are designed to solve those very specific problems. So what you get in this model by itself is the proliferation of special purpose robots, you know, a, a sparrow for a particular type of task and some other type of robot for some other type of task. And that's absolutely great. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But what you always find, and this is, just demonstrably true is that no matter how many of those special purpose robots you put inside a place, even a very highly automated place like an Amazon warehouse, there are always people remaining who are doing things. 
And the, the reason is that a lot of the stuff that is done in the course of delivering work either can't be done using special purpose technology because we don't know how, or it's not worth it economically to do so, even though we, we could in principle automate a particular thing. So if you spend some time thinking about like what you do every day, and you'll kind of write down, well, you know, at 345, I, uh, I threw a banana peel in the compost. So the question is, okay, well, would you build a robot to throw the banana peel in the compost? Like, no, obviously not. <laughs> right. But you did it, and it was part of your work day. So what ends up happening is you get all the companies that build the machines that do the special purpose things. If they pick the right task and they're competent, they do quite well. But it doesn't actually get at the heart of the problem that these companies want to solve, which is how do I automate this thing? Because what you do is you increase productivity of work and all that, but it's still not automated. So what we decided to do was do a different thing, which is try to automate the person in the warehouse or the whatever by building a machine that can do all of the small things that you wouldn't automate on your own, but in some total makes it a very valuable thing to have. So it can walk around, it can press buttons, it can pull levers, it can operate other machines, it can you know collect the trash, it can do security, it can do all these different things, none of which you would actually build a special purpose solution for. But now I'm doing 40 of them, and when I add up the value of all 40, this is a huge deal. The thing that we're doing is different. It's not better, it's just different. Where the emphasis is on generality and not solving any particular problem. We want to solve all of the in-between problems that, you know, these special purpose machines are not suited for. From a technical standpoint, I know that you consider the carbon brain and the system that you've developed, the software, to be the crown jewel of what Sanctuary has done. Can you describe that from a technical standpoint and how it works in conjunction with the Phoenix robots? Yeah, it is. It is the, the, you know, you're building something like this. The thing that gets the attention is the robot because it's a thing. It's made out of metal and plastic and it moves around and all that. But the real value, of course, is the mind, you know, the brain, the software. Kind of an analogy to the, you know, with a person, the, who you are is partly your body, but it's mostly your, your mind, you know, the thing that moves your body through the world. Uh, so in our case, the body, you know, the robot itself is pretty remarkable. So if you think about the different robots that have been built around the world, the sanctuary technology, I put it up against any of them. But the brain that we're building, the mind, the software, whatever you want to call it, is in a different category than what other people are working on. It's kind of like, um, it's the necessary part to making all of this work that's the hardest part of the problem. So the way it works is in, very simply is it learns from being shown what to do. That's it. It's a, it's a very complex system, but in, in its essence, it's an avid student of demonstration. So it works best when you can demonstrate the most kinds of things that are like what you want it to do. And how much can it adapt and apply what it learns to different contexts? In other words, could it figure out how to wipe a window from learning how to wipe down a table? Right now, no. But that, see, that, that example is a good one because it sounds really easy because, you know, we just do it without thinking about it. But when we do that thing, 
we're doing something remarkable, which is at the heart of what it means to be intelligent. This transfer of knowledge from an abstract set of words to actual physical actions, you know, the way you move your body. And we kind of take it for granted because we just do it without thinking about it. But my view has always been that the hard part of building something that thinks is not the language in the kind of like words part. It's that other thing, which is when I say, you know, wipe down the table and I can make an autonomous system that wipes down the table. Can I then tell the same system, okay, wipe the windows and have it know exactly what I want? That's really hard. And if you kind of step back and think about, well, why is that hard? Well, you have to know what all those words mean. You need to be able to translate the words into an action that has a goal that you have to infer. So for example, what does it mean to like wipe the windows versus wiping the table? Well, we know as people, because we have this thing that's well shared, common sense understanding of the world, that if there are streaks and stuff on the, t- on, the, on the windows, that's probably not good enough. But I didn't tell you that. You just knew. So how did you know? And the how did you know part, sometimes called common sense reasoning, is an unsolved problem in AI. So systems like large language models and, and their derivatives, fake reasoning by combining words in the sort of patterns that people use, but it doesn't have any understanding of the underlying objects or situations or anything that are being described. So I might be able to have an AI system say, what does it mean to clean a window? Well, you can see through it and there's no dirt. It could say that, but it doesn't understand what it means. So if you were, it was running in a robot, those words are not connected to anything in the physical world. They're not connected to vision and actually looking at something because for it, it's just a bunch of symbols. It might as well be saying, you know, you know, some gobbledygook uh, stuff that doesn't mean anything at all. It's just pattern that it's memorized. Has the, rise of generative artificial intelligence as exemplified by chat gpt gpt4 from open ai made things any better for you yeah in some ways there's a kind of big two ways that maybe it's helped one is that the underlying technologies that made it possible can be applied to other kinds of data so the experience data for example like we live in the now you know the now is all there is so that now is data, you know, data in and data out of our, of our bodies and brains. So with a robot, you can capture that experiential data about what it's like to actually do a thing. And then you can build models that are essentially the same as the ones that large language models, those guys use, but on this other data type. Uh, the other thing is the direct use of the models. While they generally speaking spew kind of wisdom of the crowds kind of stuff at you. The wisdom of the crowds is, it, it comes with the benefit that's very fast. So the, the output you get from these types of models tends to be very quick, but very unreliable. So in some ways, it's the opposite regime of the logical reasoning thing. So imagine you, you have these two parts. Let's say you've got like an angel and a devil on your shoulder or something like this. So the, the devil, the large language model, is like this impulsive brilliant mind that has imbibed the entire internet and is very quick to just spew out an answer. Whereas the other guy on your shoulder is kind of like the, the old sage, you know, the guy who's spent his entire life thinking about things and is very deliberative and has a lot of wisdom. 
And that takes a long time. So you're sitting in the mouth of the cave waiting for the <laughs> the declaration from the Oracle for, I don't know, a couple months. But when the when it comes, then you know that you can trust it. <laughs> These two kind of like ways of being are both kind of complementary. Neither of them by themselves is a solution to the problem, but maybe they could be put together somehow. So a lot of people are now working on trying to fuse these two ideas, that is logic and reasoning and knowledge on one hand, and the statistical next token prediction, large language model kinds of things and putting them together. But so far, no one's been able to do that. What's next for Sanctuary, for Phoenix? Can you give me a sense for the general direction of where you're headed as a company and where this machine and robot and cognitive system are headed in the months and years ahead? Well, I think what we need to do to succeed is pretty clear at this point, which wasn't always true. I think we went through a, f- a period of early chaos when we were trying to f- trying to make decisions that had unclear outcomes. Now I think we know what we need to do, and it's pretty simple. So we have a bunch of use cases that have been presented to us by an array of customers. Each of them is a company maker, the sort of thing that if you could actually automate it would be make this a... Um, a very, very valuable company. And there's dozens of them. We have a tiger by the tail here. Now, the hard part is, can we actually deliver on the promise? So our next couple of years are going to be dedicated to delivering on the promise. Can we actually build systems, a platform that we can run through our automation process and actually automate a bunch of different use cases, all of which are highly valuable. And if you can, then each of them has tens of thousands of robots worth of market that just the stuff we're looking at now could grow us into the hundreds of thousands of deployed machines and we're well, well on our way. So I, I think that the, the game right now is, is execution. So it used to be kind of being brilliant and thinking about a whole bunch of things that had, didn't exist and needed to be built. Now it's more about executing against a fairly straightforward but difficult trajectory. Jordy, we're running out of time. Is there anything else that you would want to cover that we haven't talked about yet? Well, one thing I wanted to mention is that when you're creating the future, you, you, you need very, very smart people to come join. And we do have a lot of open roles in the data and, and simulation side of things. And people who've worked on video games or other things that have a lot of you know graphics and simulation, uh, or people who've worked in a data-intensive fields with quantitative curation and capture of data, come look at our uh, our open recs because we got a lot of uh, very interesting jobs uh, available right now. You've got some labor issues to solve of your own. <laughs> we do. <laughs> All right. Jordy Rose, thank you very much for speaking with me. Thanks. It was great. Jordy Rose is co-founder and CEO of Sanctuary AI. Find links to related stories and resources in the show notes on this episode and the related post at geekwire.com. Thanks for listening. Kurt Milton edited this episode. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.